0: This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 574, a conversation with Norm Breyfogle. Welcome to the Common Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 574. It's our conversation with uh, the acclaimed artist, Norm Brayfogle. Uh, this episode's coming up a lot later than expected. I think it's been like a week hiatus by accident uh, between our last episode, uh, so sorry about that. But the good news is that you're going to have a, a very rapid succession of episodes. Uh, you're going to have an uh, episode 574 today, episode 575 uh, the day after, and then on Friday you have episode 576, which is a conversation with... Um, uh, Chris Meyer, and there's a lot of other good stuff coming up down the pike. We have conversations with uh, what, Jim Kruger, Brian Wood, amongst many others. Uh, some, some good stuff as we uh, ramp up to issue 600. Uh, first, before we get into the conversation with Norm, I want to thank some of the following people from the Marvel Masterworks Forum. Uh, some of them I outright used your questions, some of them I just kind of repurposed them. Um, so thank you for all those who submitted questions, which includes uh, Shotzi, uh, The Monkey, Jag 2045, Said uh, Destroyer. Or Side Optimus eighty one, uh, Dave Tone, and Steve Topper. Thanks to uh, and Mister Articulate as well. Although actually, we kind of missed his. Um, actually, the, the, we actually missed his question. It came in just uh, just after we recorded the interview, but uh, some of the uh, elements of his question did get uh, repurposed in the, or at least discussed in the interview. So it's not like it was completely to waste. Uh, anyways, without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Norm Braffogle. Norm, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good, Adam. How about you? I'm doing well. Glad to have you on the show. Um, First question I'd like to ask everyone who comes on is, uh, what was your first kind of interaction with comic books as a fan? As a fan? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) How far back do you need to go? I can't
1: really say I know. Um, One of the earliest comics that I really enjoyed that really moved me was um, the world's finest episode of Batman and Superman, it was an imaginary story where there were brothers. Oh! And it was drawn by the great Kurt Swan.
0: Oh, he's Even amazing!
1: Back then, I was only about six years old. Even back then, I really preferred some artists over others.
0: Well, what, else, what was it about that issue that really kind of spoke to you?
1: Well, it was the way Bruce Wayne was um, portrayed as Clark Kent's brother they are both in high school and Clark had to um, keep his brain power down so he didn't arouse suspicions but Bruce excelled in that and uh, Bruce beat up the school bully when he started picking on him that's something that Clark wouldn't do
2: hmm.
1: he was really fun especially the beating up the bully when I was six years old that really <laughs> that was really satisfying
2: <laughs>
1: cause you know there's always bullies around and I was a really active kid
0: did you find? Did you read a lot of comics growing up?
1: Um, I don't know what a lot is.
0: That's a good question.
1: By the age of ten, I started getting really interested in them, and that's when I. But I had a very limited funds. I missed so many of my favorites back then, especially Neil Adams Batman issues. I only got to read them as an adult later,
2: because oh, really?
1: somebody else picked up all the stuff at the local um, spin rack or the. <laughs> they didn't have the comic book specialty sh- stores back then.
0: No. So wh- when did you... So, you, you know, you're buying comics when you can, enjoying the ones that you're able to get with the limited funds and ones you're lucky enough to find on the spinner rack. When do you start realizing that you have a real talent for illustration?
1: It was around, around the same time, really. Um, Actually, it was way earlier than that in kindergarten. I was about the same level as, as everybody else, but there were certain things that I did that others didn't. And then I just kept at it in my own... I, I enjoyed it. I wanted to draw. Um, it was probably due to that influence of comic books, too.
0: When when you were first kind of, you know, again, figuring out, drawing, uh, spending your time on it, what, what were you drawing at those early ages?
1: Oh, Batman, Superman comics. <laughs> I remember a comic, and this is one that I lost. I dream often that, this, that I actually find this in an old desk somewhere, but I know it's been destroyed. In fact, I, I remember later that I threw it out because <laughs> I, it was a, kind of a world's finest story. It was Batman and Superman and Robin, and Robin had been infected. But It's been so long I can't remember the details, but a scientist had injected Robin with a giga- gigantism serum. <laughs> So Robin was was kind of like turning into the Hulk, and um, I I had inked it all in felt tip pens, but stupidly I tried watercoloring it, and I hadn't used um, permanent felt tip pens, ah uh, ink, you know. So it got all messy, and I threw it out in disgust.
0: That's too bad.
1: I, it really is too bad for me. I've done that a couple times. Even as an adult, I made a big mistake when I moved up to. Back to Michigan, to where I am now, from California, when uh, there was a big slowdown in my comics career, and I thought I wouldn't be drawing comics anymore, and uh, I threw out all the thumbnails of all my detective and Batman stories. Oh my god! Yeah, I know. that's wow. a big mis- too.
0: That's a that's a lot of stuff, too.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a lot of good material. So-,
1: so I took them to the dump myself and threw them in.
0: So when when so you were a kid, you're drawing. Uh, now, what happens when you're when you're done, like high school? Do you go to, do you go to university, and what are you studying at that point?
1: Um, well, in high school, I was always the best in art class because i concentrated on it from, you know, from kindergarten on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when I was, what really got me into thinking about a prof- as a profession was when my mother. Um, started taking me to weekend private art lessons with the local illustrator. Nobody's ever heard of him. I can't find him on the internet. Any of his work were just too bad because so I'd love to see his paintings. His name was Andrew Benson. Hmm. Um, there was another Andrew Benson that was not an illustrator. And at one point, I had to correct uh, Wikipedia because it was indicating... Um, well, they, ha- they had a... A link to an Andrew Benson, but it wasn't. It wasn't an artist. And it wasn't my Andrew Benson.
0: Yeah, that's a little awkward.
1: Right.
0: Go ahead. I was just saying that's a, that's a little awkward. <laughs> the wrong guy.
1: Yeah. Well, it was almost believable too, because the guy was a philosopher.
2: Oh, really? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and um, I'm very philosophical in nature, so it was kind of believable but no, it wasn't the same guy. Anyway, so I I kept at it. I've got a lot of that stuff. Um, I've been posting it on Facebook in my amateur year section. Mm -hmm. I mean, select pieces of it. There's so much of it that I've I've kept it all along, Um, except for that one issue that I mentioned I threw out. And I've been... I'm planning on posting a lot more of it, too. It's pretty cool. There's also also a section um, that I'm going to have on one of my Facebook uh, albums in my images that will be uh, my uh, devoted to my um, born again fundamentalism Christian years so I did a lot of paintings about Jesus oh really yeah
0: what, which years were those
1: 14 to 18 basically high school
0: interesting what were they like? I mean, this is a, such a general question, but like, what were they like? And like, I mean, I guess we'll see them soon anyway. But you know, what was yeah. that? What was that like in that phase? And what kind of brought that about?
1: That's kind of a big question, but I'm happy to answer it. Sure. Um, I grew up without a lot of father. Uh, he they divorced when my parents divorced when I was three. I was raised by my mother and. Uh, I didn't know any of this when I was growing up but I've psychoanalyzed myself since looking back and I think that uh, that's one of the main reasons I glommed onto to heroic figures in fiction like Captain Kirk and Batman and Superman and all, the, all the superheroes and Tarzan because they were masculine role models hmm. and I didn't really have one in my life and um, when I was getting actually we moved up from Michigan Michigan from Illinois when I was only fourteen, and that was kind of a traumatic move for me. I was leaving all my friends behind. My mother was always felt like she's being chased by demons or something. I mean, not literally, but she was running away from something. I don't know what. I wish she had lived so I could ask her now what why she moved so often.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We moved almost um, once every year when I was a kid. Wow. So anyway, we moved, and that's one of the main reasons, probably, why I turned out to be an artist because I had to turn inward for satisfaction. And that's why I glommed on the comic books, too. They were like a constant friend. Wow. And we moved up to Michigan when I was 14, and I didn't really know anybody up here. It was beautiful, but I loved, I loved it as a kid. I loved the, um, the lakes and all the trees. It was just a short walk in this little town that we lived in, Hubble. Um, It even sounds small like pebble. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a short walk uh, up the hill, and it was miles and miles of, of, of forest that you could walk in. So it was great as a kid. And, but that inward turning is probably what turned me on to. Well, my mother, my grandmother was really religious. And she was like the matriarch of the family. And like I said, my father wasn't there. My grandfather wasn't really my grandfather. In fact, <laughs> he was my, my grandmother's second husband, oh. Fletcher. He was a really nice guy, but he. Uh, <laughs> basically it was just really quiet in the background so he didn't really provide a role model either but he didn't provide any kind of an argument against um, fundamentalism of my grandmother so basically I became really religious and I found a lot of satisfaction there because I was you know I was growing up and I was facing um, death and eternity and <laughs> all the things that uh, you have to start facing as an adult and then there were all the things on TV, especially the Bill of Grand Crusades. They really um, helped to turn me into a Christian.
0: Wow. That's really interesting. In fact,
1: when I was 18, I'm sorry, I'm stepping on your words.
0: No, no, that's okay.
1: When I was 18, um, that was when I had the summer before going to college. That was when all I was reading a lot of. Uh, um, What's it called? The the Age of Reason books, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: philosophical books. And it was starting to pull me away. The reason I was reading them is because I I figured that I had to have a good philosophical background to be able to argue for Christ. (laughs) (laughs) And and instead, it really opened my eyes. And by the time I was 18, uh, the summer before I was going to go to college and I'd been accepted – I don't remember the name of the college, but I'd been accepted at, a, at an all-Christian college where wherein on the application you had to proclaim your salvation through Jesus Christ. And So I was going to go to that kind of a situation, And but it was just that summer that everything that I'd been reading uh, opened my mind up, and I couldn't see myself going to an all-Christian college. That's when I stopped doing the, the religious paintings and stuff. In fact, I became... Really mature, materialistic in my, in my philosophical understanding until I started
0: getting back into. God, we're really going far away from comics. Man. That's okay. I started getting back into
1: um, mystical literature um, through Eastern thought, you know, Zen Buddhism. And uh, Alan Watts was a great popularizer of that when I was a kid. Um, he's still got a lot of YouTube videos, and he's, he's just a He's a great popularizer of Zen Buddhism. And uh, so that opened my mind. And then I, then I did psychedelics when I was in college. And, of course, that opened my mind even more. <laughs> but all through it all, I knew I had to make a living. So I was doing – I was working on my comic samples. And right when I graduated from college, that was about when I was obtaining truly professional status. And you can see on um, the progression, like I said, on my Facebook pages. So anyway, boy, that was a long... <laughs> how do you do about how I got into comics?
0: That's okay. Well, no, I had a, actually a listener question, and then there's a comment afterwards. But um, the question was, oh, what are your recollections of being a graphic artist on the uh, space shuttle program in the mid-'80s? And how does being <laughs> a defense contractor artist compare with being a comic book artist?
1: Oh, I wasn't an artist. I was a draftsman. Sorry. Low-level draftsman. In fact, I hadn't studied architecture or engineering or anything like that. But um, it was the first jobs that I could get when I was out in California, and they paid pretty well—at least for me at the time. It seemed well. Uh, they were like double minimum wage at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you like? How did you even kind of get into that? Like, how do you become a low-level draftsman for the space shuttle program? Like, that sounds like a pretty cool job. But how do you, how do you get that? Well, I was um
1: looking for jobs. I was taking lots of little t- different types of jobs and uh, I'm not sure how I heard about the the um, job placement program of walltech They were basically an agency that would help people find jobs and uh, I figured I could probably fit it in as a draftsman and I had a little bit to learn but not that much. And uh, they finally eventually found me a job and that's when I first that's when I stopped doing the stuff that I hated. Like I worked at McDonald's for four hours. <laughs> it would, it would have been longer, except that that's when Wild Tech found me a job. Before before that, I delivered telephone books. Um, I painted houses. Um, <laughs> I even did some sitting with some old folks. When, oh, oh wow! You know to, to keep them uh, occupied while their family were, was out, were out doing things. mm
2: Hmm.
0: That really does run the gamut of uh, odd jobs. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, Uh, so the the person who asked the question, I guess the handle he goes by is Steve Topper.
1: Oh, that's right. I'm sorry for interrupting, but um, space shuttle program. My biggest recollection, well, the biggest recollection, most important one, was when the Challenger um, shuttle exploded. Mm -hmm. I remember somebody came in to... The draft, my drafting area and with a bunch of other people and mentioned it and
2: I, I laughed because I thought it was a joke. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But then everybody started realizing it was serious. Wow. Yeah.
1: So that was the biggest recollection. Outside of that, my biggest recollections were, um, well, just interacting with people that were a type of people that had never been around before and I actually met a girlfriend not exactly on that job but on the air Force on the Air Force Base she was I forgot what she was doing but huh. now she, she was so cute if, <laughs> she <laughs> she'd know what she was doing she could have snagged me I probably would have gotten married and I have and I'd have kids by now like I died to that bullet I don't have any kids sometimes I miss it but other times mm-hmm. mostly I'm happy with, for my freedom
0: mm-hmm now, the person who submitted the question, uh, he said that he actually met you uh, around 1986 in Santa Maria uh, oh. when he was in the in the Air Force and that you both went to the same comic shop and that you were introduced by the owner of the shop and that his first page of original art was actually from you, from a, a, cool. Bob, a Bob Violence page from American Flag before you started working for DC. <laughs> cool. So he, he, so he, he he's the one who asked about it and so he, that's why he, he did meet you and he just wanted to kind of point that out. <laughs>
1: Well, what was his name?
0: I believe it was Steve Topper. Right, you mentioned that before. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't recognize him.
0: That's okay. So he said he's only so. seen you once over the last 30-plus years, but he do, does remember yeah. meeting you then.
1: That's cool. Yeah, those that, that was the most important, most some of the most exciting times of my life it was my first years in California. and I was um, breaking free of my uh, deep thinking and philosophy and trying to party and also trying to get work and you know i got my first car (laughs) actually my second car first car i got because my um real grandfather died and he inherited he he gave us we inherited some money from him so i got my first car that way but it it was a real beater it was a pacer (laughs) i remember driving across country to, to new york and back from california and um I didn't even know that there was a fuel leak. I was paying like seven miles to the gallon. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, what I was going to say is that my second car, because Pacer finally was starting to just fall apart. And I had to have it uh, junked because it was an eyesore on the street. (laughs) (laughs) And I needed to get a a new car, but I didn't really have any money, um, didn't really have any Uh, credit history of any kind yet Um, I asked my mom if she would co-sign with me and she said no I was kind of surprised by that but she was um, uh, pretty close to the cuff when it came to money and so I went to the car dealership I brought my portfolio and I showed it to them to to the dealer one of the salesmen or maybe it was the guy who was managing the, the dealership I'm not sure it's been so long but uh, he was so impressed by my portfolio and by my drive to become a success that he gave me a loan for the car oh wow yeah so I got my first new car based on my artwork
0: that's pretty cool yeah that's a pretty good story actually (laughs) right so
1: well as I do interviews I uh, over time I learned to remember the important points of my life. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's, that's a good skill to have. Yeah. So, so when does the so I mean so you're working as as a draftsman you're, you're you've done odd jobs then you're working as a draftsman what how do you then how does the break into comics actually then occur? Obviously it, t- it takes time, but how does it actually kind of happen?
1: Well, I started attending the San Diego Con, and uh, I think I don't know if it was the first time, but it was could have been the first times the first couple years that I went there I was exhibiting my work in uh, in the amateur section of of the art show and I was also attending a uh, I'm not sure what you'd call it, basically an art class um, for DC Comics called New Talent Showcase it was a title that they were publishing New Talent people that um or maybe just breaking into the industry, and I got a couple of my first jobs for that: penciling and inking, and sometimes penciling and inking. And uh, but before that, when I had attended this class, um, I was at the at the San Diego Con. That's where the class was, basically in the hotel. And uh, Sal Amendola was the editor that was that was uh, doing that. And he told me, when I told him that I was exhibiting in the amateur section, he had seen my artwork and he said, no, you should be in a professional section. And I said, why? I haven't been making any living off this. And he said, that, that doesn't matter. It's the quality of your work. So I hung out in the professional section and um, it, let's see, two of my pieces. One was a Batman story, um, like uh, I forget how long it was, 16 pages, maybe eight pages was a short story it was eventually printed as a Captain America story um and I had to change Batman to Captain America in every panel oh wow for the for the uh San Diego show this is 1984 I had that hanging in the show and uh along with a couple of my paintings and Mike Friedrich who used to write comics in the 60s and 70s um and he was also maintained a Talent representation agency. He represented me for a while after after his girlfriend and present wife or um, partner, I don't know what they really call it. Um, basically the same thing as a wife. Lee Mars had seen my stuff hanging in the San Diego show and pointed it out to Mike and Mike saw it and um, I had left my contact information with, right next to the art, artwork um, and so my future contacted me and that he started representing me and that's when I first started getting my my first breaks actually my first break like I said was before that was in new talent showcase mm-hmm. but the regular titles like in Bob violence as a backup in American flag I think it was an eight page story every issue that was uh I got that through Mike Friedrich representing he represented me for like 10 years throughout the most productive time of my life
0: wow now how did you become involved in Whisper
1: um I guess it was through Mike Friedrich yeah he found the job he was always looking he was always passing stuff around and uh I guess first comics which was publishing Whisper um, was one of the people that he one of the groups that one of the publishers that he sent my work to and represented me and um, I guess they needed an artist another artist because the original artist I forget his name <laughs> after the original artist had left they had a number of other artists come and go yeah. so they were for somebody to do it steadily and course, that was going to be my first full-length um, monthly book, or bi-monthly book, and I was going to be able to pencil and ink it, and I also lettered it, and I was painting the covers. It was yep. a lot to take on at like my first monthly full-length title, and it was—I felt like it was going to kill me. I felt, it was really testing my desire to get into comics and stay in comics. Oh, really? But after, if, after a year of doing that, I started feeling better about it. I'm sorry, what were you going to say?
0: No, I, I, it's just, that's really interesting that, as you said, like that it was that kind of challenging and that it almost, not deterred you, but like it was it was really kind of tough to kind of get through. And then, as you said, at that first year was kind of, I guess, uh, figuring out how to make it work. <laughs>
1: was definitely in a it was before um the internet was anything like it was now it was before i even had a computer so all my reference material i had to get from magazines national geographic i had a file cabinet that i'd started filling with images from magazines when i was in college um so it was really it was actually difficult to make everything look authentic all the time. But after a year of that, I started internalizing a lot of that. And I realized that I could draw cars without actually re- referring to a, def- a real car. I could make them look realistic, and guns, and things like that. After a while, I started feeling good about it. I had already mastered drawing, the, well, pretty much mastered drawing the human anatomy, which is, and, and facial expressions and such. And that's the most important part of comics. But the other stuff was stuff that I just wasn't really interested in, as a lot of early comics artists, I mean, young comics artists would probably say the same thing. Not all of them, but probably most of them were more interested in the action and the muscles, mm. you know, and getting all the technical details in the background probably isn't as interesting to a lot of them, at least it wasn't to me. So I had to pick that up um, pretty quickly.
0: Would you, um, going back again to these earlier days? Do you prefer inking your own work or, or having another inker come on?
1: Well, I always preferred inking my own work, even though um, in the, the early days uh, other anchors were better at inking my work than I was. But I always wanted to take my own work because I'd always done it when I was, you know, producing samples, and ever since I was nine years old, I'd always done all of it myself. So I really wanted to do it myself.
0: Now, of the people who have inked your work in the past, besides yourself, who are among your favorites, do you think, really did justice to your original pencils?
1: Um, Steve Mitchell, of course. He was the longest lasting anchor on my stuff. On my Batman stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Joe Rubinstein, Probably my top favorite. Right? He's a really good artist in his own right. He does wonderful paintings. And the best anchors are... Those that can that are well rounded artists in general and that understand light and shadow and form and anatomy and things like that so they bring a lot to the table even though my pencils were always very complete because I I wanted them to uh, show through the inks Um, then one other one that I really liked and this was only because his name was uh, Kevin Nolan yeah right He inked the four covers of the initial Anarchy miniseries. And that was the best inking I think I've ever seen on my work. It would have been nice if we had worked together more.
0: Oh, wow. That's a pretty high opinion.
1: Yeah. Well, Kevin Olin's a great artist.
0: He is? Oh, Absolutely. Now, so how does, I mean, so in this period, so you've done Whisper, how does Detective Comics come about? Because that seems like a, a, a giant assignment.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I told Mike Friedrich that my ideal job was to be drawing Batman. And so he was sending my stuff to DC Comics, and he set up a meeting um, halfway between the San Diego Con and uh, where I was living in Santa Maria with... Um, dick and with his his secretary. I'm very embarrassed. I can't remember her name because she's a really sweet lady and uh, I've spoken to her many times. But anyway, um, those two and I were set up with a meeting and uh, I I showed him some Superman stuff, some Batman stuff, my paintings, and he was impressed enough so that um, when he went back, and this is funny because Years before that, I had sent um, DC Comics my best portfolio stuff, and it was the originals, large paintings, and uh, a lot of pages that I had drawn, and they were all in a big cardboard box, and it took me like a year to get them back. I thought they were going to be lost. It was stupid of me to do that. Of course, it was unprofessional. You don't send originals. You send copies. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought now.
0: So, the, so you had the you had the the original meeting with Dick and all uh, oh, right, and the reception.
1: And shortly, shortly thereafter, uh, I think it was Dick that called me, or called Mike Free Drink, and offered me the Detective Comics job, the the first one, a couple tryout issues. And uh, even though I'd been wanting to do it all my life, I remember having a deep feeling of stage fright. <laughs>
0: Well, that's, that's natural, right? Oh yeah. Before I got my first uh, script in the mail,
1: and um, I remember the night before I got this, I received the script in the mail. I had a dream that I was talking to Batman or Robin. I used to have a lot of superhero dreams, like like I think a lot of them were influenced by Frank Miller's Daredevil. Because I remember bouncing around on telephone wires like they were elastic.
2: Oh yeah. In my dreams.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I was a really physical young man. That's why superheroes were so exciting.
0: So when you do those first kind of tryout issues, I mean, so as you said, did you a bit of kind of stage fright going forward, but were you, any, were you directly inspired or was there any specific artists you were trying to kind of emulate when you did those original kind of issues or were you just trying to be true to you?
1: That's a... Uh, well phrased question because I was basically trying to be true to me but I hadn't really fully found myself yet and uh, my biggest influence in fact the guy that probably is almost single handedly um, uh, responsible for me getting into comics as an artist is Neil Adams Mm -hmm. As, as young as nine years old I remember seeing his Batman stuff and it just knocked my socks off that's probably the main reason I wanted to draw comics I wanted to draw Batman so yeah he was uh, a big influence and then there was Jim Apparel a lot of Batman artists were a big influence on me for sure then again I I never tried to uh, directly copy or ape anybody I was influenced by a lot of different artists and I wanted to keep my influences really open so I developed my own style you know there was a Nick Carty was another favorite of mine. Joe um Jim O'Pero—I think I mentioned. Pete uh, mm-hmm. Craig Russell, a lot of different artists, all of the top lights of the seventies. Yeah. My last, probably my last biggest influence was Bill Sienkiewicz and Frank Miller.
0: Okay, I can see that. So when when you start doing, uh, I guess the first issue I think was um, by Joe Duffy. But afterwards, you're working with Alan Grant for the first time. What was what? I mean, eventually, became of your collaboration, and can you describe what it was like early on and how it kind of matured, and uh, how detailed was Alan in terms of his scripts with you?
1: His scripts were really wonderful for a comics artist because he said so much with so little. It was really economical. It's just the opposite of an Alan Moore script, from what I've heard. <laughs> um, a lot of it was left up to me. In fact, uh, I even encouraged him to just leave, leave a couple pages where he just says, "And Batman beats up these thugs," because I love drawing those fight scenes.
2: <laughs>
1: First time I met Alan was on a trip to New York. Uh, I don't remember. I don't really remember why I was going I guess I was going there to meet Alan and Denny O'Neill for the first time and uh we got a a little powwow and I got Alan and I Alan's a really uh, personable guy we got along really well right off the bat and we both had a long lasting love for Batman so a lot of people thought at first or some people thought at first that I was part of a British invasion of comics (laughs) (laughs) I had to let let them know that no well DC had to let them know in in the letter columns which I kind of miss having them in the actual comics these days yeah yeah um I had to let them know you know that oh I'm American born and raised
0: that's funny I guess that I mean it was that period so I can I guess I can see it and I guess your name is not the most common I guess so people just kind of made an assumption right yeah, my last name is pretty straight. Well,
1: Norman is kind of unique, like Norman Bates. God, my last name even starts with a B.
0: <laughs> That's true. Like
1: mother without a father. Both <laughs> my favorite movies too. <laughs> well, <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock films are all great. Mm-hmm.
0: So, when you're working with Alan and you guys are, you know, start, kind of starting your work together on Detective Comics, um, you, I guess you. Created the rat catcher character. What what was kind of the design? Like, what was the ideas of the of the design that you put together, and how much of collaboration did you have with Alan on creating the character?
1: Well, Alan gave him a basic description. He said that he was wearing a World War II gas mask, and that was really it, as far as I can tell, as far as I can remember. And of course, he. Oh, that's right. He also had uh, smoke bombs. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's something I added. I'm not sure. Little gas grenades um, on his costume. On his, uh, it's not really, really right to call it a costume. It's more like it's just uh, a raincoat. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I really have a fun time drawing the rats too. It's interesting to me that I've seen other comics artists draw rats, and uh, often they just kind of lack the sense of real life. And it's been interesting interesting to me that of different animals that I'd never drawn at all and then when, when I sat down to draw them because of where were in a script it just came natural to me and I've looked into animal anatomy and it, it really syncs up with human anatomy we all have very similar um, bone structures you know our skeletons are similar yeah. the placement of muscles are similar they're just different shapes and different sizes so I, anyway that's why I really enjoyed drawing those rats and why they They seem so lifelike.
0: That's pretty interesting. When when you're doing your run, um, did you have, I mean, how how much fun was it to kind of be designing the covers as well? Because obviously, I mean, the interiors are fun and you're working off scripts by Alan, but how much fun was it to kind of uh, come up with compelling images to be on the covers? Did you find that difficult or was that one of the most fun parts of the job?
1: It was one of the most fun parts of the job for sure.
0: So, what makes a really eye-catching Batman cover, in your estimation? I mean, you've created some amazing ones. So, that's a really broad question. It is. It really, it, in my opinion,
1: I tried to make the covers reflect the story in a very um, synchronistic way with the with the script. So, that's what I would say.
0: You have a unique approach as well to uh, the way in which Batman's cape kind of flows and the way that he kind of uses it, especially in some of the earlier covers. What was your kind of, an approach to how you use the cape and how uh, you were going to make it part, like almost a character in in and of itself? And was that a bit of pulling from, again, a bit of a Neil Adams influence as well, or uh, consciously or unconsciously, or did you just try to do something new with it?
1: Well, Well... There were conscious influences, but I never really copied a Neil Adams cape or a Jim Apparel cape. They were just, like I said before, they were just influences. Um, I'd been drawing Batman, like I said, uh, in an amateur, as an amateur status uh, for many years as samples and stuff. So I had a really good feel for Batman's cape. And uh, by then, by the time I was drawing it, Detective Comics and um, Batman, later Shadow of Batman, I have basically made the cape my own. It has a real, it's like the most important visual aspect of Batman.
0: Mm hmm. Um, or it can be. Well, I guess done right, right?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, things have really changed. I mean, the way Batman's being drawn, we've, DC's got some really good artists drawing Batman, but it's more like he's got a militaristic look and, um, his cape is more, like, realistic instead of stretching into, Ridiculous dimensions as artists were doing it back when I was drawing Batman. Do you, I kind of miss the.
0: Yeah, you miss that kind of, kind of more animated look to it, or a little bit yeah. more. I mean, I guess that's the thing, right? Like, it's, it's comics, you can do things that are a little bit more over the top and crazy, and why don't you embrace that as opposed to having to make everything look more realistic?
1: Exactly. And one of the main problems with uh, the movies is that it's difficult to make Batman work the way can work in comics because he's not a super he's not really a superhero i mean he doesn't have any super strength or anything like that so he, the only thing you can really do is and they've been doing it lately and like the justice league movie i was really impressed with how they handled batman's cape mm-hmm. it's finally being done right on on film on screen
0: now, with with Detective Comics, obviously you you guys you know created characters. Uh, you used a lot of kind of classic characters too, um, and you had a long run illustrating Batman in different titles. Um, would you like which which of which was your favorite villain to kind of draw during your time on the books?
1: Well, oh, I, I enjoyed a lot of them. I, I would say that my favorite villains were the ones that became the most long lasting ones, like uh, Anarchy, who is a villain. He's an antihero. Um, excuse me uh, let's see what else well the rat country you almost never see anymore
0: no which is a shame because he popped up a lot
1: <laughs> yeah the ventriloquist is uh, probably the would be the one that I'm most connected to that I feel most connected to um, there were actually a whole lot of them that we created
0: that you don't really see much of at all it does feel like a shame but I think part of the problem with modern comics is that When you have stories that are traditional, like these days, are not just in one issue but are multiple issues, uh, then it feels like more often than not they go with the kind of the safe choice in terms of villains. Not always the case, but uh, they go with kind of the ones that are going to get people to buy as opposed to necessarily taking time to develop new characters. Now, that's not always true because obviously, you know, like we've had new characters. Scott Snyder created the Court of Owls. Like there are new things that come in, but it does feel sometimes that there's that kind of a, a reluctance, to kind of create those things. And it might've been easier back when you had single issue stories or, you know, you I could,
1: think that's very true. Yes. I was drawing, um, Batman and comics in general and Alan was writing them in an era where there was a lot more freedom. In fact, we really noticed the change from that kind of an era to uh, a more corporatized look and structure to the characters when the Batman movies started getting big. Hmm. No, with michael keaton in fact on the artistic front that was when we were encouraged to draw uh, gotham city just the way it was in anton first's designs of gotham city for the first batman movie and uh, also they started regimenting like his bat Grapnel device yeah it was always pretty stu- i always i always thought it was pretty stu- stupid that he had a rope attached to a batarang and that he could swing through the city like that
0: (laughs) it's comics though right
1: yeah well that's one of the things about uh, Batman
0: is
1: (laughs) you look at it too realistically and it's going to completely flop like it's uh, if you look at it really realistically especially in the movies it's difficult to picture Batman swinging through the city um, you know without getting completely exhausted after a block or two
0: yeah that's a good point I've watched some of the movies that were composed
1: online on YouTube. They were composed of uh, the uh, computer games like Batman Arkham Asylum and things like that. Yep. And it's, it's really it's really great at first to see Batman kicking, like, dying guys, knocking them all out in the rooms very systematically. But then if you watch the whole movie, he keeps doing that and keeps doing that and keeps doing that. And there's no way he could keep that up. <laughs>
0: that's a good point <laughs> yeah there's yeah. no there's no uh, exhaustion level
1: exactly and with Batman of all the quote, superheroes unquote there's got to be an exhaustion level because it doesn't have any superpowers <laughs> I've noticed with the Marvel characters even the ones that used to be just called peak human like Captain America now he's like he's like the Hulk was depicted in the TV show
0: yeah actually yeah sometimes yeah a lot stronger than just peak human now
1: exactly Lot he'd be able to kick Batman's butt easily. <laughs> <laughs> Except if Batman had prep time, of course, that's different.
0: <laughs> of course. Um, yeah. Now, in the early nineties, you you with Alan launched the Batman Shadow of the Bat book, which was you know a new book starring Batman. What was what was that like? And was there a lot of pressure to kind of create a new Batman book because you had Batman, you had Detective Comics, but now you have Shadow of the Bat coming.
1: That was um, broken to us. At a, at a Batman Summit Conference. Danny O'Neill uh, already had the idea and he gave it to um, Alan and us and Alan and I as our own forum for doing Batman. So it was really a great honor. Um, however, <laughs> we were taken off the Batman book just in time for, um, I forget the other artists that got to draw the... Uh, uh, I don't know four hundredth issue of Batman, which made a heck of a lot of money in in royalties, and, and uh, Alan and I missed that. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I would have been able to buy a house right then. It yeah. took me a, ten years more for me to be able to buy a house.
0: So, so in and around this period, so you, 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 uh, I don't know exactly how how it all worked out in terms of timeline, but you are no longer working with DC, and then you're working on on the Prime book. How did that? Kind of come about. How did you end up leaving the Bat books and working on this new project? Well, I've been drawing Batman for quite a while, and um,
1: Image Comics had kind of exploded, and um, I had actually even been mentioned, um, Todd McFarlane had mentioned my name on a in, in the Wonder. It was the WonderCon, yeah, San Francisco or near San Francisco. What is it, Alameda? I forget across the bay from San Francisco. Um, we were on a comics panel together and he mentioned me as one of the artists that would be perfectly suited for Image Comics. But I... <laughs> I'm trying to figure out exactly why I didn't really pursue that base, or how to describe it. Basically, I've never been a businessman. I mean, I handle my own finances okay but to actually build a little empire uh, like uh, Todd McFarlane did he became a millionaire with his toys and stuff Mm -hmm. excuse me I I just didn't have that kind of business acumen or even interest in doing it so uh, I missed out on like the image stuff and I was starting to feel like I should be doing something that was more original, and I mean, more of my own than Batman. And uh, that was when Mike Friedrich uh, pitched the offer to me to do Prime for Malibu Comics. They were opening a new universe called the Ultraverse, and, and uh, I loved the idea. And at the, at the exact same time that that was pitched to me, and I accepted it. Had to make a choice between that or the Robin gig because Danny O'Neill at the WonderCon offered me the, um, the art chores on the Robin title. That was Robin's first single. Ti- I mean, first what do you call it? A uh, single hero. He was the hero, the main character of the title. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I was so tempted to do that because I think I do the best Robin. At least back then I was. Uh, well,
0: your Robin, your Robin was fantastic.
1: I was able to give him a, uh, an iconic look the way I did with Batman. And I would have really loved to have done it, but I was uh, already been doing so much at DC Comics and in the Batman universe that, like I said, I was itching to do something else And when Prime was offered to me. <laughs> I Well, what really convinced me to do uh, Prime was that Malibu Comics offered me sight unseen my own title after I drew Prime for a year Metaphysica that's what I came up with uh, Mm -hmm. time on Prime and uh, so that was what really convinced me because I knew I'd have total uh, creative control over my own character (laughs) but Prime was a lot of fun it was so different than Batman it really felt freeing to me and it's funny the exaggerated uh, anatomy on on Prime bled over into uh, later comics that I did like I did a couple Batman issues afterwards and in my own opinion I think I made Batman too overly muscled with all the bulges that Prime had
0: oh really yeah (laughs) well and I was going to ask yeah because I mean you couldn't have two characters that are kind of on the face of it, in terms of the visuals, that you know, very opposite from each other. Because Batman's, exactly. you know, he's muscled, but again, it's controlled. And then you have Prime is kind of a very out of control physique, it's very different right. from each other. And again, he's the kind of the Superman analog compared to the Batman that you were, you were used to working right. with. Exactly. Actually, more
1: like Captain Marvel. That, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Same, same contrast. Yeah. Um, the thing about Prime that I really loved is that Kevin, uh, I got his last name the character who turned into Prime he was actually he had, his body was inside Prime's body and it was connected through almost um, oh, some kind of uh, bioectoplasm. he, he could uh, explore it out of his chest and it grew around him so I use that to and there's a certain intrinsic humor to the character too Mm-hmm. Because he's, an, he's he looks like an adult superhero, and um, but he's really just a kid, and he's playing at being an adult superhero, and so, so I played that up by making Prime overly muscled. The first sketches that I saw from another artist—I'm sorry, I forget the artist's name—but um, he just looked like a Superman-type physique, and I reason that um, even though Kevin's a lot smaller than Superman would be, he still. You know it'd be difficult for him to fit inside the Superman body uh, comfortably <laughs> so I just figured I'll make Prime really huge and it fit really well with the humor humorous quality of the character and all the bombastic stuff I just it was so freeing to me to be able to draw these super powered fight scenes <laughs> I've been wanting to do it for a while
0: that's pretty cool and then when you do get your you know your own character your own your own title um, was that I mean was it was it everything you kind of wanted it to be that now you have total creative control you get to you know you're you're the writer you're doing all the art uh, what was that kind of experience like to be able to control your own destiny in that way
1: oh, it was wonderful I didn't have to worry about selling it or managing it uh, as a business because Malibu comics is doing all that that's exactly what I wanted so exactly what I've always wanted is complete control um, creative control um, but without having to worry about the business and the things so yeah but, since it was the first stuff that I was writing professionally
0: mm-hmm actually I have a question going back for a second because obviously so this is the first kind of professional writing work you've worked on when you had had such a long collaboration with Alan um, had your collaboration reached the point where you guys would kind of plot together at any point or kind of spitball ideas and then he'd you know kind of actually do the actual plot or how did you I mean considering how long you guys had worked together had your um, collaborative process changed over the years?
1: Oh a little bit mostly Alan was still um Handling the writing chores, and I was doing the art. But we were communicating by fax machines back then. I was I was writing letters. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I've got long sheets of them now somewhere. But the last time I looked at them, where, where I stored stored them, even though they're out of the light, they're faded so much you can't even read them with But yeah, um, Alan used to, especially when we were when we started doing the Anarchy stories. That was when our collaboration, or, our, or at least our conversations, start, started up as, as a creative combination. He was really into this philosophy called Neotech, and um, I'd been interested in philosophy all my life, and mm-hmm. I saw a lot of holes in what he was talking about. So we had some spirited conversations by facts. And it, a lot of it bled into some of the anarchy stuff. But no, I, there were only a couple of stories that I plotted, maybe a small handful anyway, of stories that I co-plotted with Alan. There, was, there were a couple of Batman stories, too. It was the Batman, the abduction, and Batman, Dreamland. Hmm. Those were co-plotted by me.
0: Get into anarchy for a second. When you, you know When you first create the character... Um, again, how involved was Alan, and exactly what he wanted from the character, and how much of it was just from your own imagination?
1: Alan just, uh, as a, if I remember correctly, in the script, he just described him as a spy versus spy, you know, from Mad Comics, something oh, like that.
0: Yeah. Okay. With well, he was obviously a. Um, uh,
1: what was it? What's the character? I can't believe I'm forgetting his, the character's name. The movie was made out of him and everything. He, he was like the British Guy Fawkes mask character. Okay. You know who that is?
0: Uh, like V? Yeah,
1: V for Vendetta. Yeah. Basically, it was an Americanization of V for Vendetta. Huh. And uh,
0: Interesting. I, I never thought of it that way.
1: Oh, really? Wow it's pretty obvious both I guess different.
0: I guess it is I just never never thought to connect the dots in my head sorry
1: <laughs> no it's alright it'd be interesting to know how many other people have or did not connect that huh. it would be really neat if, if they could make an anarchy movie it'd be like an Americanized uh, V for Vendetta but anyway Alan only described them as like a cross between V for Vendetta with um, spy versus spy So I just, uh, oh, he did describe also that he had a, he was wearing some kind of a structure around his head to make him look like an adult. Because he was only about 13 or 14 when he he introduced him. So I, you know, I gave gave him this uh, uh, cylindrical kind of cone around his head that had a fake head on it, an anarchy mask. And, uh, that's why he looked very unique when you first see him because he's, Got these big pointed shoulders and he's got this long neck and it's all fake of course because Kevin is hidden under I'm not Kevin <laughs> that's Brian <laughs> I forget what the guy's name was uh, I don't remember the character's name that was uh,
0: that's okay it has been a while
1: <laughs> yeah it has been but anyway yeah so I just draped them in red clothing a long cape and I uh, gave I think um, Alan also mentioned a taser weapon of some kind
2: okay.
1: so I gave him that cane and of course the energy symbol I incorporated it into the hat and, and put it on his chest there wasn't a lot of thought put into it I mean <laughs> these characters are being created well the stories are being told at a breakneck pace true yeah we had to always meet the deadlines and I was really good at meeting deadlines back then I got progressively less less good at it
0: <laughs> so uh, I mean so in this kind of the, in that kind of mid-90 period how do you end up back at DC doing the Anarchy miniseries with Alan how does that come about like that you know you've moved away you, you've been working with Malibu so how do they get you back and how do they kind of pitch you or did you guys pitch them on an Anarchy miniseries
1: we pitched that um, it was the mid-90s basically there was a com- comics implosion mm-hmm. and that happened to be right when I was doing Metaphysique so it was a six issue miniseries that I'd written and uh, when I was halfway through it the implosion occurred and the sales numbers dropped precipitously on a number of different books um, you know because people had been buying tons of comics thinking that they were Going to go up in value like they were good investment items, but but if everybody's buying them, yeah, they're not anymore. <laughs> so that imploded. That imploded and uh, right in the middle of Metaphysique, and I think the first issues in Metaphysique were like um 30,000 and then 20,000, then I went down to 15, 15, and then 10, and then five. Oof. And uh, the only reason the only reason I was able to finish the story because Malibu was losing money on it after the after the third issue was that I were to produce the rest of the book for free and I did because I well, already had the story all mapped out and I wanted to get it all out there so I, I barely got out there in time before the implosion um, killed it you know yeah I even had a dream that I mentioned in uh, one of the session preludes that I write at the beginning of each issue of Metaphysique I had a dream there was a giant storm in my backyard, in, in the backyard of the house that I own in Calistoga, California. And uh, it, it was, we had a little creek down there, but in my dream, that was the raging um, Pacific Ocean. And there was a whirlwind, or, or what do they call it, a water spout. And it was going up into the clouds, and I felt the need to jump out into that water and swim out to its glorious acme and, um, before it was too late. And it's kind of representative of what happened with Metaphysique. I was able to get in um, at the last minute. I was able to produce some of my own, my own comics character um, that I completely had complete control of. I was barely able to finish the six issues, which is too bad, too, because <laughs> that was the first stuff that I was writing yeah. for, for comics, basically. And I've done a few things over there, but very little. And uh, the story, as I wrote it, it was well planned out, but it could easily have lasted for two, three years, four years, instead of just the six issues, which were which were basically six months. I remember when I started when I started drawing the stories, um, started drawing the pages, and. I was uh, sending the inks off to Digital Chameleon Colorist I remember making a little um, humorous note on the margin saying who the hell wrote this thing there's crowd scenes with five panel pages
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's way too I was writing it but, and I was writing it for myself but I just didn't have the experience to realize that I could have spread it out much longer but of course if I had I wouldn't have been able to finish the story so
0: mm. So you guys pitched the Anarchy book, and they, they they decided yeah let's do this. And then now how did after the, after this I guess Alan, ex-
1: Alan was actually reluctant to do it because he didn't think Anarchy was a strong enough character to well, carry his own book, and he sure not to be correct. But only after um, about a year's work.
0: Yeah, well, because I guess that's my question. Because you guys you did the miniseries, and then I guess they brought you back for the ongoing, and I guess how what was the experience of kind of working on and ongoing on a character like anarchy that you guys had created together
1: oh it was a wonderful experience I'm
0: not sure what to say um. no that 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 that's good and again <laughs> and in and around this period you also um I guess you came back to shadow of the bat for a mini sorry for a, an arc as well uh, also with Alan and it was at the same type of thing where you guys kind of pitched hey, Let's come back to Shadow of the Bat for three issues, or do they kind of come to you? Like, how did? At this point, it's almost like you guys are married to each other. So, how did? Who did they approach first, or did you guys approach them to do that story in Shadow of the Bat?
1: Well, for the Shadow of the Bat issues, the, the last ones that I did, at Alan and I—well, Alan did a lot of them after i left to draw, draw yeah. Prime.
2: Yeah. Um, so,
1: after Prime and after Metaphysique, uh, uh, I needed some work, so I was willing to, to accept a couple issues on in fact I was jobs were hard to come by and I found myself not attached to any particular character well selling character Metaphysique had been finished and Prime it uh, Marvel Comics had bought it and basically killed it after just a few issues I got to draw one of them where Prime met Captain America
0: oh nice yeah but um
1: because of the comics in implosion, there was jobs were hard to find. So basically, I had gone. The reason that Anarchy had as much airtime, so to speak, as he did, was because I was pushing for it because I needed work.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess during this kind of period, where as you said, like work is slowing down, so. How did you end up working with uh, Steve Englehart on his Hellcat miniseries? Because I've spoken to, uh, to Steve before, and you know he was kind of approached by uh, Tom Brevoort, the editor at the time, to kind of come back to some of the characters he'd worked on and created, and kind of fix them, so to speak, uh, and kind of be able to you know write the ship on characters that had kind of gone askew. But how did you end up on that project with him?
1: Well, Mike Friedrich was still my um, my representative at that time, my agent. So he basically got that for me. Okay. And I was I was happy to work on it. I was Happy to draw out some Marvel characters. Um, when I was first breaking into comics, and I was, I, I got uh, a couple, um, what's called Marvel fanfare jobs. Um, a couple of them that I wrote as well as draw drew. I met, I mentioned the one that was originally a Batman story, and I had to change it to Captain America.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right.
1: Yeah. And, but then. DC basically picked me up, and Marvel wanted me, but I really wanted to draw Batman, and they were giving me a lot of stuff to do. So I, I didn't really get a chance to do much Marvel stuff until later on with Hellcat, and by then, uh, I wasn't really connected to Marvel, and there were new editors, and they didn't—they just didn't seem as interested in my work. Well, basically, what it is with editors, as I've discovered, is that when new editors enter a book. They don't want to be, a con- they, want to, they want to forge their own path. They want to, you know, make a name for themselves. They want to do something new. And of course, you got to do that in order to keep the sales up too. So I understand that perfectly. And so I was becoming old hat. And that's why basically I thought I would. my comics job, my comics career was over. That's why I moved back to upper Michigan. I sold my house in Calistoga. <clears throat> I sold my house in Calistoga and moved up here back in uh, 2001. In fact the first night in this apartment, I, I woke up the next morning and the towers were coming down okay. in New York.
0: Oh wow. Okay. That's wow, that's yeah, that's that's intense.
1: Starting to seem like a long time ago and I'm still in this damn apartment.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's growing way too small for me, but uh, it's gonna be difficult for me to move out now. I'm on uh, limited funds mm-hmm. you no know, social social security basically and any artwork that I can sell on the side I'm not, I can't draw anymore at least not with my left hand which I, that was the only hand I ever drew with because of my stroke, I'm sure you probably heard about my stroke, right?
0: I did yeah actually one uh, there was a couple questions that were uh, actually one question was is there still a way to donate to your medical expenses now that the GoFundMe page is no longer active
1: I'm really glad to hear that um, because I am going to have a new GoFundMe page. Okay. Within the next year. And I'll have a little video that, uh, I will be putting that I, I in which I will descri- be describing my situation. And, uh, also some new artwork. Cause I'm going to, pl- I'm planning on drawing with my right hand. I know I can do it all the concepts are in my head. No problem. And, uh, I just can't draw small, tight things with my right hand because that's just a skill that you have to develop over a long period of time. Absolutely. But I can draw large things, like 18 by 24. I, get, I can draw large Batman heads. I know I just haven't bothered to even try because I've been concentrating on my non-comics writing, my creative writing, like poetry and short stories. In fact, that what I would really like to do next is uh, find a publisher who would be willing to take, take a chance on Um, a new series of books or or a series period it could even be a new incarnation of metaphysique Um, but I wouldn't be drawing artwork because like I said comics drawing is too tight and small for my right hand to handle Mm -hmm. but I've already got a lot of short stories it would be I think they would make really interesting comic stories and i I'd be willing to hook up with other artists In fact, i really enjoy seeing other artists Drawing my stories That's never happened before
0: well, I guess not, yeah Because you've always done them yourself, right? I mean, thats you're an artist That's what you do
1: Right But I've really become pro- I've attained a professional level with my writing In my own opinion <laughs> If I may be so bold <laughs> comics writing per se but writing writing in general I've got like uh, I don't know 12 or 13 short stories that I've written and uh, I've got two thirds of a science fiction novel that I've written and um, I'm putting together a book of my poetry um, There's I've written well over 100 poems that'll fill a thick book of poetry and also I've, I wrote that years ago in collaboration with a friend of mine we, we were communicating. God, I can't believe I'm not remembering these names now. He was a good buddy of mine, a long distance buddy. He was the anchor. Dennis Janky that's right. He was the anchor on, Spectre, on the Spectre. Oh, yeah. That I grew for a while. Yeah. He and I started communicating by um, emails in poetry. And that, that became really difficult to do. So we s- settled on haikus. Huh. And so he's. I've got like a hundred. 1300 haiku that I'm constantly, always it's amazing how the editing process just goes on and on and on, I'm really refining these haiku to be as succinct as possible, and as meaningful as possible, and on his end he's got another 1300 as well I don't know if he's planning on doing anything with them, but I'm planning on putting all of mine into a book, so I'll have have another thick book of uh, haiku Wow. And the short stories are also going to be put together in a book, and uh, I wouldn't have any problem with them being – well, they'd be, they've already been written as short stories, prose stories. And I don't think there would be any problem with that being one instance of them and then having them also interpreted as comic books, as comic stories. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really interesting.
0: Well, I'm curious too. Like when when you're writing the short stories, because of you know, your lifetime of you know illustrating comics, like visually, like is it almost weird to be writing the word the prose words and not laying it out in the comic form? Like, how do you visualize the stories? Are you seeing it almost like a like a storyboard, like in, in a comic, or oh, like no. how does the visualization happen?
1: Um, it's a I get a core idea, an abstract idea basically usually a philosophical idea of some kind and i think about it for you know a number of days or weeks and uh i think about how to um tell a story that expresses what i'm trying to express and um i've become quite a writer i I always felt that there was a writer in me when I was growing up, but I was concentrating entirely on my artwork. Mm-hmm. So I never really developed it. My first efforts were like with metaphysique. And, uh, but once, once I moved up here to Michigan and I was out of work for a while, I, uh, I started writing in earnest and not comic book stuff. Just like I said, short stories, a novel, uh, poetry. And so I'm, I'm thinking not in terms of comic book stories, my short stories could easily be comic book stories. In fact, in fact, um, there's a the father of one of my friends on Facebook um, who did, just on his own initiative, he was a, he's a fairly good artist, he, he like, loves comics, and he drew one of my short stories. Oh, wow. And, yeah, it proved to be um, something that could work really well. So these short stories could easily be comics, comic stories that's mm-hmm. yes, the only instance I have of an artist doing that um, if his artwork were actually used uh, it, I would have to um, I would have some editorial input because uh, a couple of the pages are not quite laid out right the lettering and stuff is too comp- too compacted
2: into the panels and such mm-hmm. um,
1: and also his artwork although it's good it's It's not really what I would ideally have on that on that story, but,
0: but it's kind well, of a, it's kind of a proof of concept, though, that it you know can work visually.
1: True. That's true. Well, I already knew that. Well, but yeah, it, <laughs> it is a concept. I never really thought of it that way, and yet that's true. Yeah.
0: So i have I have some uh, some listener questions, and if if we can go into a lightning round,
2: sure.
0: <laughs> um, First one um, from comes from a listener by the name of Shotzi. who just wanted to ask, uh, when you were working with Alan Grant... Hang on a
1: second. Hang on a second. Yeah, are sure. these questions that are coming to you right now?
0: No, no. These aren't live. These are questions okay. that, that were previously submitted. Right. Okay. Uh, so one question was, um, was the Batmobile of the era that you were drawing, was it your design or was it someone else's design?
1: When I first was drawing Detective Comics, like I said, there wasn't a, um, a corporate... Um, consolidation of the of the Batmobile and, this, and Gotham City and Batman's accoutrements yet so on my own initiative we had a lot of freedom back then on my own initiative ev- every issue I was figuring that I, I was free to design my own Batmobile and uh, I wasn't dissuaded from doing it so I kept doing it
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so I finalized I think the best version of my Batmobile was the one that was in uh, Shadow of the Bat Although I did get a little bit too exaggerative with it The, the Corgi Corgi Toy Company They made a couple of Batmobiles based on my designs And the second one that they did Is really ideal That's my ideal Batmobile
0: Nice That's actually you know, what, what is it like to see something you designed Created in, in, in toy format Oh that's fun A lot of fun Like the Prime figurines
1: Malibu Comics Oh yeah yeah, made some toys while prime. and of course his muscles are so gigantic that they're really hilarious. in <laughs> that way, if I hadn't drawn them drawn them that way, he, he would have been more like Superman. Yeah, if I exaggerated him.
0: That's funny. I guess it makes it a more unique toy too, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, of course. There's been recently there was a Batman black and white figurine or statuette based on one of my comics, Detective Comics covers, and that's just a really beautiful piece. The sculptor, whoever he is, um, was right on target with the cape.
0: Did they send you one? Oh, yeah. Okay. I should hope have so. You, have you seen it? I have seen it, yeah.
1: I actually went online and googled Batman black and white statues and took a couple hours um, paging through all the images of all the different artists and there are a lot of great designs there. Um, Some of them, I don't know, they didn't work as well as I would have expected. Like the ones that were based on Neil Adams, I didn't really like them as well as I liked them in the drawings. And in my own opinion, my own statuette uh, has has one of the more interesting cases. So I was really happy with it. Then of course we've got the Anarchy figurine as well the anarchy action figure Mm -hmm. and uh, if they come up with any more like maybe Zaz that would be great because i would get a piece of that action too that's where the big money is in in merchandising
0: for sure Uh, another question that came in that was submitted was uh, what are your favorite stories that you worked on with uh, with Alan
1: I really liked the last stories that we were working on where Batman was abducted by aliens and he went to uh, Area 51 to research it or to, to find out what was going on. Those were a lot of fun. I also co-plotted those with Alan, so that, that's one of the reasons I enjoy that so much. But also, also the painted covers. Mm. Some of my best painted covers and my interior work as well. Um, earlier than that, the problem first few years on detective comics those were probably my most fun because god I was at the beginning of my career I was my, I was 26, 27 I was doing just what I would always wanted to do and I was in California and I was partying hardy and I was young enough to be able to handle that it was just a glorious time and some of those some of those issues are indelibly connected to some of these glorious times of mine like for instance the fear that's a character that you don't see much of either. But he was fun to draw because he could appear as Abraham Lincoln. He could um, cast an illusion that he was anybody. Like, he, he appeared as Jesus in Lincoln. And uh, <laughs> there's one scene where Batman's tied to a uh, box springs. And the, fear, the character of the fear is trying to terrify Batman because he feeds on fear. But Batman isn't terrifiable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've seen these issues, but there, there's one panel, one page that I really like, or a couple pages in this issue. I forget what issue number it was, but um, Batman's tied to these box springs, and the fear appears as a giant demon, and basically he, he's got Batman's head in his in his mouth. And Batman's just completely unfazed by it, and he's saying, uh, "Give it up, Stur." <laughs> <laughs> you'd go back to the institution it's, it's really hilarious so those were a lot of fun um, like I said Alan's stories were in my opinion ideal for comics artists because they left a lot to the artist to envision
0: mm-hmm. now another listener question was uh, what do you think of the way that anarchy's been portrayed in other media
1: Residuals, I guess. so <laughs> I'm happy with all of them. Um, but artistically speaking, in the Batman animated cartoon, one of them, um, one of the recent ones, or, or I mean, the recent as like four or five years ago, yeah. anarchy appeared as a he looked kind of like Moon Knight, he was in an all white costume. That was prob- probably the most far afield from what anarchy really is, in my opinion. The way he's depicted that in the – well, I haven't seen all of the depictions if, he, if he's appeared recently. In fact, I'm just not in touch on what's happening with comics these days. But um, the way he, he is sculpted as a figurine, that's probably the best way to do it. He looks like an anarchist. He's got a hood. He's got uh, a bunch of accoutrements hanging off of him, you know, gas bombs and Molotov cocktail and things like that and uh, the way it's very different than the way Alan Grant and I envisioned Anarchy originally but it doesn't matter because as with Batman there are a lot of different ways to depict these characters and still maintain the the essential core of them
0: now how did you what was it like when you were you know illustrating uh, stories for Batman Beyond
1: oh well, that was fun that was um, like not, it's, it's very interesting I look back at my career and it's like even though I was just accepting offers that came to me whichever offer came to me at the time my first the Archie comics I didn't really expect to ever be drawing Archie comics that turned out to be a really wonderful time mm-hmm. but the, it was right after that that I was offered Batman Beyond and Batman Beyond was uh, based on the animated TV show and Archie comics is very much like a cartoon and so Batman Beyond was like a, a meshing together for me as an artist, meshing together Batman with more even more cartoony version than I'd ever drawn my, myself. So it was uh, nice to go back to Batman. In fact, after, after I'd been drawing Batman Beyond for a while, um, I started feeling like Batman's cape was updated. Uh, was, uh, It was old fashioned (laughs) because I was drawing Batman Beyonce flying with these cool bat wings. And so I really enjoyed the character Hmm. for as long as it lasted.
0: For sure. Um, Now, this might not be a fair question, but uh, who would you say is your your favorite collaborator, or should I just say your favorite collaborator who isn't Alan?
1: One that was really there was only a couple that were really difficult um for instance when I was drawing Black Tide uh, the publisher and the creator and writer of, of those comics was so particular about everything that it was it I felt hemmed in um mm. but still the results were good I mean I've always been able to work with people in any capacity in order to get the job done um See. Oh, um I should have got another cup of coffee. <laughs> My mind's dragging. Um
0: We have been, of, we have been going a long time though and it is getting late, so it's you're forgiven.
1: <laughs> right. Um, of Bitter Souls, written by uh, Chuck Sat uh, Chuck Satterley, which I drew for a year or two. Mm-hmm. He was an ideal comics writer, and it's too bad that he didn't really get a good break into comics, um, because he always wanted to draw comics, and it was a dream of his to work with me. and And uh, his scripts were a lot like Alan Grant's, in in the in the sense that they were they weren't overly conceptualized. You know, they were they were to the point, and they left a lot to the artist's imagination. In fact, I told Chuck that when I was working with him. He, he took it as a great compliment, the, the fact that his scripts reminded me of Alan Grant's scripts.
0: That's mm-hmm. high praise.
1: Yeah. And, uh, of course, I loved working with Steve Uncle It's too bad that we didn't get to get a longer uh, Hellcat um, story. It would have been nice if she'd had her, uh, more than just a few issues. Yeah. Because I had a lot of fun with that. It was a challenge to, it's always been a challenge to draw beautiful women. Because yep. that's, beautiful women and children are the most difficult things to draw. Really? Because if too many lines, mm. um, it makes them look old. Interesting. That makes give sense. Really youthful look, and the way to give them a youthful look is to make every line count instead of putting in too many lines. Hmm. So it was always a challenge. Now, I guess. When I was really drawing whisper, I didn't. Th- I don't think that I was really. Well, it's too bad that I couldn't draw women better at that point. I was, I was doing okay, but in fact, all my faces back then were a lot of the, te- the Detective Comics faces that I drew of people without masks on and stuff like Bruce Wayne. I guess I felt. I often felt like I dropped the ball when I look back on that stuff. Really? Yeah. Well, faces are. I have a high um, standard in my mind for drawing faces, even whether they're more cartoony or whether they're more realistic. And uh, I was learning as I was going along. I was always, you know, being chased by the deadline devil. Mm-hmm. And so it was a constant effort to always increase my abilities and at the same time meet the deadlines
0: there's a there's a an, well it's an old interview now but it's like 16 years old of uh, John Remeter Jr. talking about his style and he's like my style is whatever get you know g- gets out on time <laughs> that's my style
1: exactly it's the deadline well, uh, my, st- my style that's something I was going to mention before earlier too in this interview my style uh, Batman was largely determined by that fact you know the the uh, angularity and all those solid black shadows, that saved a lot of time. Mm. (laughs) At the same time, it really worked. I really enjoyed playing with those um, basic design shapes instead of having to put all the detail into the buildings and stuff.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So, the last question I have for you, um, this comes from a listener, but I'm curious as well, uh, is what is it like to have um, some of your, you know, your your Batman work reprinted in a Legends of the Dark Knight by Norm breifogel hardcover.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, it was um very satisfactory. I I really enjoyed it. Came out. It was published right during the year after my stroke, mm-hmm. and it's a real um, spiritual lift me up for me. And uh, I'm just hoping that they're going to be able to a second volume and a third volume because all these stories were published in Sp- in Spanish and found five volume set or a seven volume set, I'm not sure exactly which, but there are a lot more stories to publish in English and uh, I don't know if they're going to be doing second volume well, I, I think I saw um, that the second volume was already being, uh, I don't know what they call it, chopped around
0: like it it is actually though no, the second volume is actually listed on Amazon now uh, for no- right. Re- November this year.
1: Excellent. Yeah, so, but like I said, there could be like uh, if they really wanted to go for all of the Batman work that I did, that would include the, the painted race uh, Rashal S- goal origin. Yeah, and uh, that was that's 103 pages right there, and uh, it would probably take up to five or seven volumes I don't know how many volumes gonna, they're going to do but every volume is uh, it's, it's very satisfying to think that the most uh, exciting times of my life drawing comics are still being appreciated after all these years
0: for sure well and especially when you look at the other volumes in that kind of Legends of the Dark Knight hardcover kind of collections in the series it's you know great company to be in as well yes Exactly. I mean, for a lot of people, you are the Batman artist that they know because they grew up on your Batman, and seeing your work with Alan is what they think of when they close their eyes and think of Batman. Like that, you are, you know, a generation's Batman artist, and it's good that people are going to be able to finally actually be able to, you know, put on their bookshelf these nice, beautiful hardcover collections of, you know, huge swaths of your of your work.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's really satisfying to me. It it brings a sense of continuity to me in my life and, and in in the comics industry because when I was a kid uh, Neil Adams was what I am now to a lot of other kids that have grown up mm-hmm. you know there's it's like a passing of the torch and to be considered I don't know how many artists I've actually done these books for but considering all the different artists that have drawn Batman over the years it's it is quite an honor to have these good collected as they're doing
0: absolutely well norm thank you so much for spending so much of your time with us this evening i really appreciate it i know my listeners will as well and uh and thanks for the, the years of work that you put out that you know we got to enjoy
1: well thanks adam i had a lot
2: of fun in this conversation too